All right, so we're going to go ahead and get started with week seven, hitting the outer court. Um, just a few things to remember. As we studied last week and we looked at the inside of the tabernacle, um, we were reminded that this was an image of a heavenly reality that Moses was viewing. Okay, and so Moses is up top on top of the mountain, and he's getting this glorious image as he's communing with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. And again, when we see that number, 40 days and 40 nights, it doesn't always mean a literal literal 40 days and 40 nights. That number is very symbolic in the Bible. And so we know that he was up there for like a really long time. That would be like in English a saying for many weeks. Okay, so he was up there for a long time. We don't know if that was literal or not. Um, but he's up there on the mountain, and we're getting for the next three weeks, we're on week two of this, the instructions that he received up on the mountain during those 40 days and 40 nights about the tabernacle. So we saw the inside of that tabernacle, we saw how just unbelievably marvelous it was from the inside, that it had that beautiful um, drapery on the inside that was of the royal colors of blue and purple and scarlet, um, that it was embroidered in cherubim, that the inside was all gold, the furniture was all gold, um, and just absolutely magnificent. But we also said that the average person, the normal Israelite, never would have seen the inside of that tabernacle, that they never would have gone past the outer court. And so just kind of keep that in mind today as we talk. Um, and today, like I said, we're going to hit the outer court. And we don't get much um, imagery about what the outer court would have felt like. Like we get the dimensions of this and, and some of the things of what it looks like. But I just want to put in our minds a little bit about what it would have felt like to be in the outer courts before we get into the actual text. The outer court was huge, and we'll get the dimensions in a little bit, but it would have been big enough to fit hundreds of people. And so this would have been a gathering place. Um, we, this would not have been like your prayer garden. Like this is not a peaceful place where you go to quietly commune with the Lord. People would have been bustling around. They would have been bringing their animals in. So hundreds of animals, hundreds of people. And so just imagine like what that would have been like. The smells that would have been present, like awful, I'm assuming. Um, just smelly. There would have been blood from the sacrifices everywhere. Um, the sounds that they would have heard of the animals being slaughtered. This was not a peaceful place that we would think of where it was quiet and they could spend time with the Lord in a serene way. It was chaotic, messy, and smelly. So kind of keep that in your mind as we move through this section of the text. So we're going to dive in to chapter 27. As we did last week, we will jump around a little bit. We're going to be in chapter 27, and then we will move to chapter 30, verse 11, and hit the end of it where we left off yesterday. So chapter 27, verse 1, we're going to start with the bronze altar. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horn shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its corners. You shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the ring so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it's carried. 
You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown on the mountain, so it shall be made. Okay. So we have this bronze altar, and we get the dimensions here, and the dimensions are about four and a half feet high, and it's seven and a half feet in diameter. So this is the largest piece of furniture that is present in the tabernacle. Um, and again, it's in the outer court, but it's still part of the tabernacle. It is again made of acacia wood, which would have been the common wood in the area. But this time we see a difference. It is overlaid with bronze. And we're going to see that that bronze is a theme that we're going to see here in the outer court. It's also made to be portable. And in order to be portable, you saw that it was also hollow because this was such a large piece of furniture that if they didn't make it hollow, they wouldn't have been able to move it with them. But it has the same things. It has the rings and it has the poles and it's made to be able to be moved. You also saw that it has four corners, four horns, okay? Very similar to another piece of furniture that we saw last week, and we'll go back to that piece of furniture at the end. But it has the four horns, and you were kind of asked to ponder, like, why would it have had four horns? And I have to believe that it was most likely, and most commentaries seem to agree, that it was probably to hold animals down. Like, it was to tie the sacrifices down, because some sacrifices were slaughtered and some were not. And so this was used to tie down the animals in some cases. This was essentially, this altar was essentially a large grill. It was a large grill in which the sacrificial meal after it was slaughtered, was cooked. And then after the meal was cooked, the people actually sat down and ate it in the presence of the Lord. And so this was a meal that they had in God's presence where they would bring their sacrificial animal, they would watch it be slaughtered, they would watch it be cooked, and then they would eat it together as a family. And you were asked to consider in your homework and to look at Hebrews chapter 9. We've spent a lot of time in Hebrews over the past two weeks. Um, and when you looked at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, you were asked to consider how was Jesus' sacrifice a better sacrifice than this of the animals. And I just want to draw out a couple reasons that I, that I hope you were able to see as you did your homework, that Jesus' atonement was better because it was one atonement for everybody, Right? These animals that these people brought, they brought again and again and again. And the animal would cover one person or a family, but it wasn't one sacrifice for all. And so we have this idea that it is one sacrifice for Jesus for the rest of eternity for all people. It's also better because it is his blood, the blood of our perfect lamb. It's not the blood of the best of the flock, but the blood of himself, our perfect lamb. It is an eternal redemption, not a temporary one. And the blood of these animals, although they did cover sin, and we talked about that last week, how when the blood was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, as God looked down onto the ten laws, that instead of seeing the broken law, he saw the blood covering it. it did, this blood of the animals did cover their sins, but it didn't wipe them clean like the blood of Jesus. And so we see that Jesus is ultimately our better sacrifice, and the bronze altar and the sacrificial system points to him. And at the end of this section on verse 8, we get a reminder again from the Lord. We've seen this repeated several times. As it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. And so we're reminded as a reader, okay, this is something Moses is actually visualizing. He is seeing this heavenly reality. And so we're reminded that the tabernacle is a shadow of something bigger. 
okay? It is a shadow of something bigger. And as we continue this section, we're going to continue to look and see how the tabernacle points us back to Eden, okay? We'll continue to look at that, but we'll also see how it is a shadow of a future reality that Jesus fulfills and then also that we will see fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. So let's continue to the court of the tabernacle. This would have been the fence area where the people would have gathered and the bronze altar would have been in it, beginning in verse 9. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars 20 and their bases 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for, one, for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their p- three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hanging shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. Super clear, right? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) So essentially what we're getting here are the instructions for a very, very large gate. The fence that is going to go, I'm sorry, very large fence. The fence is going to go all around the tabernacle and, and basically create a courtyard in which the people could gather. It was about 75 feet by 100 feet, okay, so very big and about 8 feet tall, okay, so it is large enough to basically hold hundreds of people, and the idea that we get here was this was a courtyard that was to be filled. The people were supposed to come and participate in corporate worship to the Lord. The Lord did not want the people worshiping him individually or as families in their own homes. That's not where sacrifices were to be made. So they were to come into his house, into his courtyard, and worship together with him. We also see here that like the bronze altar, everything here besides the hooks are bronze. And so this is the Bronze Age right now in this time of history. And so the bronze would have been the most common metal. It would have been readily available. And the idea that we're getting here is this is the metal of the earth. This was the most common thing that they could have used as a metal. And so we see this, this juxtaposition between the tabernacle, the inside of the tabernacle that is made of gold, and the outside of the court that is made of this common earthly material of bronze. And so we have the heavenly reality where God is in the tabernacle, which is gold and royal, and then the earthly reality out in the courtyard. And we're going to come back to the difference between those two. We're going to continue in verse 16 here and look at the instructions for the gate. Okay, So we have the courtyard around, and then there was a gate in that courtyard to enter. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen of 20 cubits long of purple, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. The hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the breadth 50, and the height 5, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be bronze. Okay, so 
You might want to take a look in your workbook at your um, diagram that you made, if you need to look back to look at the tabernacle and how you labeled everything. And I want you to notice where you labeled the gate. What direction is a gate? On what side? It is on the east. Okay, that is very important for you. So I want to actually take us back to Genesis chapter 3 um, and draw just one thing to your attention here. I think it's just so beautiful. So in Genesis chapter 3, this is verses 22 through 24. This is after Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit. This is after God has given them those series of curses. And then we get this in verse 22. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat, eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard their way to the tree of life. So we get this beautiful image that they were banished from the garden on the east side, right? And then where are they now allowed to enter into God's presence? On the east. They are being welcomed back into the garden, back into the presence of God, and the Israelite would have seen this symbolism. They would have known the story of Genesis. They would have known that that is where the cherubim had been placed, and God is like essentially removing the cherubim and saying, you are welcomed back into my presence. I am going to dwell with you again. I am going to tabernacle with you again, and it is from the east side that they are now allowed to enter. Again, this hearkening us back to the garden and helping the Israelites to see that this is a, a creation story. This is a reenactment of the Garden of Eden. And it goes further than that because we know that in these I am statements that Jesus makes, that one of the I am statements that he makes over again, um, and this, is, this one is from John 10, 7 through 9, is he says, I am the door. And sometimes he says instead, I am the gate. So Jesus here is basically saying like, hey, I am the door to the tabernacle. If you want to enter into God's presence, if you want to enter into holy and Sabbath rest with the Lord, you have to enter through me. So when Jesus makes this claim of I am the door, he, he is saying to the Israelite believers, like I am, I'm the door of the tabernacle. If you want to get into the courtyard, if you want to get into the presence of God, you have to come through me. Let's go ahead and continue in our text and look at the oil for the lamp. I want to remind you that this lamp that we saw was in the holy place. It would have been the first section of the tabernacle. And we, re we remember the lamp looked like a menorah. It had the seven branches, the one in the middle and the six going out on either side. And we said it looked like the tree of life. And the symbolism was that God was their source of light and life. And it was supposed to, again, take them back to the Garden of Eden. Um, but again, we saw that there was so much symbolism in Jesus as well, who claimed that he was the light. And so we see this lamp, and we're getting commands here for the oil that was to be used to keep it lit. So verse 20. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may be regularly set up to burn. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend to it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. 
Okay, so this oil, notice it says it is to be beaten. And so the, the opposite of that is they would have taken the olives and they would have crushed it. But that produced an oil that was much less pure. And so God is saying to them, it is going to be the purest form of oil. And that would have produced an oil that would have burned almost smoke-free. So this is the purest oil that they are going to use. And notice that it is supposed to burn continually. It's going to be a continual representation of God's eternal presence. When the Israelites at nighttime looked towards the tabernacle and saw that tent glowing, it was a reminder that God was there, that he was eternally present. And in verse 21, we see the phrase, the tent of meeting. And I just want to let you know that it is the same phrase as tabernacle. You will see them used interchangeably from now on because eventually this tabernacle is going to be the place where Moses meets with the Lord. And so he sometimes will call it the tent of meeting. And we're told that Aaron and his sons are going to tend this lamp to take care of it. And the phrase is used, evening to morning. And I just want you to think, where else in the Bible have you heard that phrase? Genesis, right? Evening, it was evening and it was morning the first day. Over and over again, we hear that phrase in the creation story as God creates and we're told that his creation is good. And so again, it is bringing us back to the creation story and we're being keyed in that this is a creation narrative here. God is coming back to live in tabernacle with his people. And it says at the end here in verse 21 that this is to be a statute observed forever. And I just want to look here for a second because a thought could come into our mind of like, well, we don't have like a huge giant menorah burning in the worship center right now. Are we like disobeying God's command? Well, no, we're not. Because remember, the tabernacle was just a shadow of what was to come. It is just a shadow. We know that Jesus came and made that declaration of I am the light. We don't need a lamp anymore to burn because Jesus has fulfilled that. And we know then when Jesus left and went to heaven that we are now to be the tabernacle. We are now to be the light of the Lord or the, for the world. And eventually we're going to be in the new heavens and new earth. And there's not going to be a lamp there either, but there's going to be light that emanates from our lamb. And so this statute is going to be observed forever, but not in this particular way. Let's look at the census tax. We are jumping now to chapter 30, beginning in verse 11. This might seem a little bit out of place. We've been talking about all of this furniture and this tabernacle and now the courtyard. And now all of a sudden we're going to see a census tax. So it seems a little odd, but I'll help hopefully draw a little light into why this is included in this section. So chapter 30, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel... There, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half the shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make the atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and you shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Okay, so we get the reason for why the census tax is included kind of at the end here, that the census tax is going to be used 
by the priests to keep the tabernacle up and running. This is what they're going to use to keep this oil burning and to keep the furniture going and to be able to afford to make the incense and the oil that we're going to see here at the end. This was to enable them to keep the tabernacle running. But I also want to kind of look at this instructions for why a census was also to be taken and why there was so much caution over taking it. The census would have been taken for one of two reasons in this nation. It would have been taken because the people were going to war and the army needed to be numbered. Okay, we're notice that it says 20 years old and upward. They would have only counted the men, and this would have been men who were eligible to fight in the war. Or it would have been taken for tax reasons. And that's not what we typically see happening, though, with the nation of Israel. And so what we're seeing here is the Lord is saying, you need to be cautious when you take a census. And the reason why he says this is because when we begin to count things, we automatically begin to take ownership of it, right? We count our money in our bank account, and it becomes ours. And so he knew that when this nation began to count its men and see power in their military, that they would begin to think that that power belonged to them. And he cautioned them strongly against that. In fact, we're going to see that when the nation of Israel goes to war, their success and failure depends completely on the Lord. And there are many tests throughout the Old Testament where the Lord has them take away half of their men and go with fewer men into battle. Or when they go into battle without the Lord's blessing and they fail miserably. The Lord is saying to them, your success as a nation, your power is not dependent on you. And he uses this language of plagues. Okay, If you, if you do not pay a ransom, the consequence will be a plague. This would have reminded them of Exodus, right, of their Exodus from Israel. And what happened there? The Lord used plagues to deliver the nation from the mighty nation of, of Egypt. And it was very clear there. We said this was a showdown. When we studied the plagues, we said it was a showdown between Pharaoh and the Lord. And the question was, who was more powerful? And so it is a reminder to the people that their redemption as a nation depends completely on the Lord and not their own power, that they are a people to be dependent on him. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, we see David. There's an example where David does this wrongly. He wants to prepare to go to war. He does not have the blessing of the Lord, and he says to Joab, the commander of the army, he says, I want to take a census of the people. Like I want to see how big my army is. And Joab cautions David against this, but David does it anyways. And they do not pay the census tax, and 70,000 people are wiped out by a plague. The Lord is saying to the people, you are not to go to war without my blessing, and you are not to take credit for the power of your nation that belongs to me. We also need to be cautious as we read and interpret this, though, as we see these men pay a ransom. Notice it's half a shekel, which would have been just a very, very small amount. And we're, we're keyed into that because it says the rich aren't to give more, the poor aren't to get less. Like, this is almost like petty change. Like, it is not dependent on how much you make. And so he's saying the significance is not important. But we need to be careful that we don't get this idea that if the men paid a ransom, their lives would have been protected in battle. That's not what is happening. The Lord is not saying, hey, if you pay this ransom, I'm going to protect your individual lives. This is a ransom for the nation where it is a remembrance of their dependence on the Lord for their success and failure as a nation. All right. 
Let's go ahead and move further in chapter 30. We're going to look at the bronze basin. This would have been the last piece of furniture that we're going to, this is the last piece of furniture we're going to cover, but it's also the last piece of furniture in the courtyard. When you entered into the courtyard, and you saw this on your diagram, you would have come first to the bronze altar and then to the bronze basin. And I want you to keep that order in mind because it is important in this section. Verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, you shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Moses and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with the water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and feet so they may not die. We get it twice. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. Okay, so this bronze basin, again, stands between the, the door. We have the door of the courtyard where you would enter. We have the bronze altar, the bronze basin, and then the door that goes into the tabernacle. Okay, so this is the second piece of furniture. And so when a priest would come to offer a sacrifice, the first thing he would do is he would go to the bronze altar, and it's there that the sacrifice would be made. And so the priest would slaughter the animal, and then covered in blood, he would come next to the basin to wash. And you were kind of brought to Exodus 38.8 in your homework, where we saw that this bronze basin was also made of another material, that it was made of mirrors. Do you remember studying that this week? And you were asked the question, why mirrors? And I would love to see all your responses in your homework. Um, but this is, this is the response that I would have to that. And I could be wrong. So I, I would love to hear, Patty, what you guys discuss. But I, I have to think that as the priests came and see these mirrors covering, and they're, they're covered in blood, and they w bend over to wash, that it is a reminder of the blood. They see the blood on their hands. They see it probably on their faces that was splattered on them. And they see their need for cleansing. They see their need for cleansing. So we have this mix of blood and water. And again, there's a reenactment happening here of Exodus because we see blood and water together a lot in that story. We see the birth of Moses through blood and then his salvation through the waters of the Nile River. We see the Passover lamb and the salvation of the people with the blood smeared on the doorposts and then we see their deliverance through the waters of the Red Sea. There's blood and there's water. But we also see it in the ministry of Jesus as well. We see it with his baptism in blood. It's the, or the baptism in water. It's the start of his ministry where the spirit of the Lord comes down and we hear the voice of God from heaven. It says, this is my son. Okay, it is the start of his ministry. And then we see it with his blood on the cross where we hear the words, it is finished. We also see it when that sword pierces his side and what comes out but blood and water. In 1 John 5, 6, it says, This is he, referring to Jesus, who came by blood and water. So we have this mix of blood and water, and we get this idea that somehow blood and water are both important for our salvation. And I want to push us into this idea just a little bit more, and I want to look at John chapter 13. In John chapter 13... We are getting ready. We have the Last Supper happening, and Jesus is preparing the disciples for his death. 
and he gets down on his knees and he begins this unbelievable act of washing their dirty feet. Okay? And then Jesus comes to Peter, my favorite apostle probably. He comes to Peter, and Peter in his passion says, Lord, like you are not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says this, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And then Peter, again, just in passion, in the way Peter is, says, then wash every part of me. Like, wash my head, wash my hands, wash my feet, wash all of me. And again, the Lord gently corrects him. And he says this, Peter, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, for he is completely clean. So what's Jesus saying here to Peter? He's telling Peter, you have already been made clean. Your whole body does not clean, made clean again. My, my sacrifice for you, Peter, my sacrifice is going to completely justify you before the Lord. The blood of my body is going to wash you clean. Your whole body does not need to be cleaned again. But there is some gentle cleansing that's still going to need to happen. Your feet are still going to get dirty. There's going to be ongoing sin in your life that is going to need to be purified. He is helping us see here the difference between justification and sanctification. And that is what we're seeing with this bronze altar and this bronze basin. We see that as a priest go to the bronze altar and they offer this bloody sacrifice, that they are being justified by the blood of that sacrifice. And it is because of that justification that they are able to continue on past that bronze altar and go near to the tabernacle. And then they get to the tabernacle, they get to the entrance of the tabernacle, and they see this bronze basin, and they see the mirrors, and they're reminded there that there is some cleansing that still needs to happen. They need to wash off that, that ongoing sin before they enter into the tabernacle. And it is just like our lives. We are justified once before the Lord and made completely clean. But we know that there is mess And there is ongoing sin that we continually need to cleanse in this process of sanctification. So we see this beautiful thing being played out for us here in the outer courtyard as we see these two pieces of furniture. Then we come to the anointing oil and the incense. Let's look at the oil first in verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of the meeting and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all of the utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense." And the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. So we get these repeated commands throughout this, and we see, again, anytime we see something repeated, it is emphasized for a reason. 
So this blend of oil in the commentaries that I was looking at, they said it would have been about 40 pounds. So this is a lot of oil that is being made. And the oil, the purpose of it was to be put on the tabernacle, the furniture of the tabernacle, and on Aaron and the rest of the priests. And so it was to anoint them for service. But then we have this command over and over again that it's not to be put on anybody else. Don't pour it on anybody else. Don't put it on anything else. And so we see that this blend of oil, this fragrant oil, was to be made for one purpose, one place, and one thing. And it was to remind the people of the Lord and the tabernacle. This was not to be placed on other people. It was not to be used in other homes. This was the Lord's home. It's kind of like today, like when we see all of these perfumes that are made by famous people and everybody wants to smell like them, right? Like in my day, it was Britney Spears' perfume. Like if you had Britney Spears' perfume, you were like really cool. I, it's not that anymore because I'm old, but I don't know what it is now. So, so it's this idea, and we're seeing here that the Lord knew that there would be a desire to take this and copy it. Let's look at the incense, verse 34. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, Stacti and Anika and Galbanum and sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each there shall be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put it, in the, it, put it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. And it shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off by the people. So again, we see the same idea. This incense for the Lord was a scent that remind the people of God. God is a jealous God. It is not to be used anywhere else, for anywhere else, or for any other purpose. And you had in your homework the question, why was it seasoned with salt? And you did some work to see that there were other things that were seasoned with salt as well, including some sacrifices. Well, when we burn something and it has salt in it, the salt remains. Did you know that? I did not. I learned that this week. The salt remains. It stays behind. And so we get this idea that when a sacrifice is burned or when this incense is burned and the salt remains, it is a reminder of God's everlasting faithfulness, that he is steadfast in character and he does not change. The salt would have stayed even as it was burned. And I want just to remind you of last week. Where was this incense burned? Do you remember? It was burned on that gold altar that we studied last week. And that gold altar was placed directly, it was in the holy place, but it was placed directly in front of the veil that separated the most holy from the holy. And it was right behind that, that, that veil that the presence of God sat. And remember we talked last week that when this incense was burned, it was like the prayers of the people being raised up to the Lord, and the Lord saw it as pleasing and good. But notice this, this altar, this gold altar. We talked last week that it was gold, right? And it also had four corners. And I asked you to remember that, to remind yourselves of that. It had four corners. And what piece of furniture also has four corners? 
the bronze, right? So we have the bronze altar that is out in the courtyard, and we have the gold altar that is inside the tabernacle right before the presence of the Lord. And so by the bronze altar in the courtyard, this earthly courtyard that is supposed to remind us of the earth because it's made of bronze material, it is common, we see blood, and it is chaotic, and it is messy, and there is animals, and they are being slaughtered. There are hundreds of people. But then we see the image of that, the exact same replica, smaller version, made of gold, inside the temple, and it is burning this beautiful smelling incense. And we get this picture. Remember, this, the tabernacle represents heaven, a heavenly reality. We get this image that even though here on earth we have this chaotic sacrifice happening, it is noisy, it is smelly, it is, it is crazy out there, it is loud. Inside the tabernacle, in the heavenly realm, what God is experiencing, what God is seeing is this, is this heavenly and sweet aroma. And we can make the same comparison here to our own lives. I don't know about you, but my life is messy. It is chaotic. It isn't always smells, doesn't always smell great. Sometimes it seems like what is happening around me does not seem super pleasing to the Lord. Sometimes I feel like I am stumbling my way through this, this process of life, this act of serving the Lord. But what does the Lord experience as he sits up in heaven and he, he takes our sacrifice of our life? He is experiencing this, this heavenly aroma. We said that this represented the prayers of the people and I just think that is such a beautiful representation of what we experience on earth, that as we are living out our lives to be a sacrifice to the Lord, as we're praying to the Lord, asking him for help in our lives, as we're coming before him again and again in the mess of our everyday lives, asking him for guidance and wisdom and his presence, that what he is experiencing is not mess, is not chaos. He is not turned away from it, but he is, sees it as a pleasing offering. And what a beautiful reminder that has been for me this week. So I'm going to close us in prayer, and I'm going to send you off to your small groups. If you bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for our time this week in studying your word. Um, as we look at these um, different elements of your tabernacle and your courtyard, um, Lord, it is just a marvelous representation of your sovereignty. Um, as we see the way that these things take us back to the Garden of Eden, but take us all the way forward to our future um, in the new heavens and the new earth with you. Lord, we are just struck in awe of who you are, um, of your desire to live and tabernacle with your people. And I, I pray, Lord, that that reminder um, would change us today, that we wouldn't just read these texts and walk away and think that this is pretty or nice, but that it would truly change the way that we think about ourselves as your tabernacles. I thank you, Lord, that you use us, that you love us, um, and that you see our lives as a pleasing sacrifice to you. Um, Lord, I pray that as we move into this time of small groups, that our conversations would be pleasing and glorifying to you and encouraging to us as well. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Have a good rest of your morning, ladies.